You are listening to National Security Law Today. We open tonight with an acknowledgement of the disaster that is unfolding in Israel and Gaza. And we hold our breath in the hopes that policymakers that we know here in Washington will manage this crisis well and without regard for partisan politics. We hope that the bloodshed and the ongoing horrors will end before this becomes a wider regional conflict or escalates to one that could be fairly described as a global conflict. But there is other news to cover since the world never stops when one crisis unfolds. Elsewhere, Alibaba, a Chinese mega online retailer, is believed to have been conducting cyber espionage at the main logistics hub in Belgium, according to Belgian intelligence. The current theory is that the logistics software is giving China a view into supply chains and vulnerabilities with a long-term view into exploiting that data for their national security advantage. And in Singapore, arguably a laundromat for dirty money, Parliament announced that it was exploring tougher money laundering rules. We can only hope that exploring in this context does not equate to searching for the Holy Grail or some other process-laden quest with no end game and no meaningful results. But on the topic of filthy lucre, in Russia, Putin is trying to find more ways to raise money to fund the war, aside from what he is calling donations from companies. He's been squeezing those out of Russian companies for the last year. And for the first time, Russia's defense spending will outstrip its social welfare spending, which could be the beginning of the end of what is known as the Russian social contract. All right, on to the show. Recently, one journalist has stood out as grasping some of the more nuanced issues facing national security policymakers. From the distinction between enhanced anonymity virtual currencies or privacy coins and Bitcoin to how mixers and tumblers function and how that's different from what an exchange. How its location, any exchange's location, can play a role in transparency to the greater long-term policy issues facing international civil rights activists and the intelligence community actors who cannot be sure any cryptocurrency transactions will be fully anonymous to the darker implications of forensic tools used to trace cryptocurrency transactions. And if you're not reading his work, you probably should be. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa Poteet. My guest tonight is Andy Greenberg, senior writer for Wired Magazine and author of several books, including most recently Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency, and my favorite, Sandworm, A New Era of Cyber War and the Hunt for the Kremlin's Most Dangerous Hackers. Hey, Andy, thanks for coming in. Really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thanks for that introduction. Tracers in the Dark was quite a book. Utility polls in Washington are now covered with leaflets that read Free Ross and show what looks like a sweet, fresh-faced teenage boy. Who the heck was Ross? Well, who is Ross? He, I guess, just last week hit his 10-year mark in prison. He's serving two life sentences for creating and running the Silk Road dark web drug marketplace, really the first of its kind. And a story, I suppose, that kind of really is what got me interested in the dark web and in kind of in cryptocurrencies, or at least like the kind of anonymous criminal anarchic uses of cryptocurrency. 
in 2011 or so is when I kind of stumbled across Bitcoin, you know, and I, I thought that this was a kind of interesting cypherpunk invention that was anonymous, untraceable digital cash for the internet. And that's actually how Satoshi Nakamoto, this mysterious creator of Bitcoin, described his or her or their invention. I got really interested in the ways that it seemed to me like this new kind of crypto cash was going to unlock a world of online crime and money laundering and who knows, like terrorist financing. Around that same time, I wrote the first print magazine piece about Bitcoin in April of 2011. And then just a couple of months later, the Silk Road kind of popped onto the scene, this marketplace, a black market on the dark web where you could buy and sell pretty much like any contraband that was deemed appropriately like victimless by its creator who was who called himself the Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, who turned out to be Ross Ulbricht. But nobody knew that at the time. And I got really obsessed with the Silk Road and it's kind of interesting libertarian idealism. I mean, the Dread Pirate Roberts was this incredibly fascinating rhetorician on the site even. He he not only ran the Silk Road and like set down its rules and moderated its disputes and everything, he also would would write these libertarian manifestos in the user forums. And he had a Dread Pirate Roberts book club where he assigned Austrian economics readings and things to everybody on the site. So I was fascinated by, I don't know if I completely like was sympathetic to it, but I was really interested in this anarcho-capitalist experiment that the Dread Pirate Roberts was running. And that's how, really how he conceived of the Silk Road, not as a kind of criminal marketplace. In fact, as I said, he, like, he banned what he considered anything but victimless contraband. You could buy or sell or put into your bodies anything you wanted. You could even sell guns, which he considered you know, useful for self-defense. But you couldn't sell, you know, even stolen hacked information and definitely not things like child sexual abuse materials or anything that truly had, you know, what he considered to be real victims. So I tracked down the Dread Pirate Roberts and I interviewed him in 2013 under his pseudonym, you know, over Tor's anonymity network on the Silk Road and wrote a profile of him for Forbes. Then just a couple of months later is when he was caught in a, a public library in San Francisco and FBI agents who enacted this very elaborate sting operation snatched his laptop out of his hands and you know, he had full disk encryption on that laptop. And if he had just managed to close the lid, he might have actually avoided prosecution or, or won in, at trial. But they did grab it in an open and unencrypted state. They got all of his chat logs and his diary and his you know, he was logged into the Silk Road at the time, truly caught red handed. And that was how Ross Ulbricht ended up going to prison for the last 10 years. Yeah, he was caught in flagrante delicto, as we say. In addition to that, there were other people who were utterly corrupted once they began to understand cryptocurrency, who were law enforcement agents who were actually working on the case, right? Right. The fascinating thing about the Silk Road was that it was built on this, what turned out to be a completely flawed premise that Bitcoin was anonymous and untraceable, which I fully believed, as I said at the time. And the Silk Road was not taken down through cryptocurrency tracing. It was, you know, through like what turned out to be this incredibly powerful tool of blockchain analysis to follow the money, to unmask people like Dread Pirate Roberts. Nobody actually knew when Ross Ulbricht was arrested that this was possible it, or, you know, some researchers did, some technology firms were starting to believe it was possible, but law enforcement had never caught anyone, never prosecuted anyone based on blockchain evidence, based on cryptocurrency tracing. Ross Ulbricht was caught through some kind of simple and sloppy mistakes 
that he made that left a trail of breadcrumbs online to his real identity through his, you know, his Gmail address on a programming forum where he'd asked for help and then used the same pseudonym to try to drum up interest in the Silk Road on a drug forum. And that was what got him caught. So it seemed in 2013, even when Ross Ulbricht was arrested, that cryptocurrency still was at least somewhat anonymous and untraceable. And it was only actually in the wake of the Silk Road bust that this one IRS criminal investigator, T. Green Gumbarian, began to look at the case and found that he could trace outflows of money from the Silk Road to two federal agents, one DEA agent and one Secret Service agent, who both had enriched themselves in different corrupt ways while investigating the Silk Road. The DEA agent, Karl Mark Force, had actually served as a kind of mole inside law enforcement and had, had sold intelligence back to the Dread Pirate Roberts. And the Secret Service agent had just stolen like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoin at, at one point when he had access to Silk Road administrator's computer. Uh, and both of these guys were caught through cryptocurrency tracing. They were the first defendants ever to be caught with this new investigative technique that turned out to be incredibly powerful. And T. Green Gambarian, the IRS criminal investigator who did this, would go on to kind of, I, I don't know, he's sort of like the first of a new breed of detective who would use cryptocurrency tracing to take down one massive cyber criminal operation after another. That's really the story of Tracers in the Dark. You've also written, before we, we get on to some of the other stories that are contained in this, about its use by the hackers who you know were involved in the DNC hack and the transfer of Bitcoin to purchase things or used a Bitcoin to purchase servers and the like. And you've written about that as well. So it's also got a national security overlay, this sort of use of tracing and trying to find out the origins of the transactor. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that now cryptocurrency tracing is definitely a, a national security investigative tool. I mean, ransomware is a national security issue and ransomware ransoms are paid in cryptocurrency. In fact, tracing them, I think in many cases, can identify the actors behind these attacks, help to sanction them, help to figure out where at least they're cashing out this cryptocurrency to then sanction those off ramps as well. And it, I do think that although it has not managed, it has not you know, turned out to be a kind of silver bullet against ransomware, it's, it's got to be like an incredibly important part of any eventual fix for this massive epidemic. But also now North Korea is enriching itself with billions and billions of dollars of stolen cryptocurrency that is funding their nuclear weapons development. I mean, that is a huge national security issue with North Korea as well. Like tracing the money doesn't allow you to, to arrest someone. They're all well beyond, you know, extraditions reach in the same way we can try to cut off these cash out points, these liquidation, you know, off ramps for them. And that may be part of the solution there as well to this problem of North Korea, just stealing billions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency and state sponsored cybercrime, basically. But I want to go back for a second to Ross, because he looks like not the worst guy as this whole cryptocurrency dark web mess unfolds in your book. It's it's a really tale of sort of escalating awfulness. Alexander Kaz, how would you say he compares to Ross? Right. I mean, Ross was literally not the worst guy. There was always, it seemed like once, you know, one of these dark web kingpins like Ross ultimately turned out to be, once every one of them is taken down, there's always a worse guy ready to fill their shoes, it seems like. And I think that that's in part because 
it kind of just pays to be a little more ruthless to set a fewer rules for your dark web market. And so over time, as the Silk Road and then Silk Road 2, and then another site called Evolution, and then another one called Agora, and then finally this site called Alpha Bay appears, each one of them, they become more and more amoral until Alpha Bay, which eventually was the biggest dark web market in history, and, and is, I think, by some measures to this day, it was 10 times the size of the Silk Road at its peak. Alpha Bay really had very few rules. You still could not actually sell child sexual abuse materials, but you could victimize people. You could absolutely sell malware, stolen, hacked information. Of course, there were no rules about like what sorts of drugs could be sold on there. People sold poisons that were used in actual murders. Alpha Bay was a, a truly very dark place that that combined, among other things, like the traditional world of very not victimless cybercrime with the even more kind of profitable narcotics trade. That's what made Alpha Bay so big. And it was run by this guy who called himself Alpha O2, who, who had started out as a kind of traditional cyber crime fraudster before creating this market that grew to be so gigantic. And he truly, it turns out, both in his professional life and in his private life, just had you know no sense of morality, no none of the idealism of Ross Ulbricht whatsoever. You know, it would turn out not to kind of like spoil the ending that he was this absolute self-described alpha male pickup artist, just almost sex addicted philanderer living in Bangkok who just cheated on his wife constantly and and blogged about it almost like compulsively on this extremely right wing, highly toxic masculine site called Rouge V. I mean, he was a true textbook villain. Ultimately, I mean, I, I I try to paint everybody, even the you know supposed villains in the book, with uh, you know with I try to be fair and treat them as human beings, but it was hard with Alexander Kaz, who turned out to be Alpha O two, to find any kind of redeeming qualities. It seems like it, and the way you have described him is very fascinating, up to sort of how he meets his end. But yeah, he sort of sounded to me like one of these incel crazies, but with access and more power. That's right. Like maybe what... a former incel. And he yeah. had the money to do it as well. I mean, Alpha Bay was extremely profitable and he had like the Lamborghini and the Porsche and the villa in Phuket and real estate in several countries and seemed to be on that trajectory. Even, you know, I think he was just at the beginning of it really when cryptocurrency tracing kind of ended it all and identified him. Well, you know, you structured the book so that each story, and it is chronological, also shows how the dark web marketplaces become increasingly hard to investigate and obviously more loathsome in terms of their offerings. I and mean, obviously that's a great literary device. And in this case, where the facts unfolded, I guess, to, to make it that way. Was that your intent in writing was to show that sort of escalating tension? Well, you know, the stakes get higher and higher because the as I was saying, the dark web, I think, really did get darker and darker. The Silk Road eventually looked almost kind of like quaint and naive by comparison to some of these markets that I described closer to the end of the book. But it also, in this cat and mouse game, the cats just evolved so much faster than the mice and had such an advantage that it almost, I kind of almost wished that there were more dramatic tension and more kind of hurdles and challenges 
Alphabay was definitely more sophisticated than the Silk Road. The administrators of the site had learned a lot about cryptocurrency tracing and did try to throw up roadblocks. And uh, it, it took some very clever techniques and developed by Chainalysis, this cryptocurrency tracing firm that is now kind of the leader, I think it's fair to say, or at least the first in that industry of cryptocurrency tracing companies. And then a couple of really brilliant um, FBI analysts in Washington, D.C. who came up with a new trick that eventually identified cause and Tigran Gambarian actually with Chainalysis came up with another technique that that identified the alpha base server in Lithuania. But you know, it's nonetheless, it was almost too easy, you know, and it just became easier and easier over time. Well, to a degree, right? You talk about the chain analysis, which for our listeners is a forensic tool that um, can show commonalities, if you will, between certain transactions and ultimately lead back to the people involved in the transaction as opposed to some anonymous block on the blockchain, but it's not designed to really investigate these privacy coins or these enhanced anonymity transactions. You really hit this. And I, I want to compliment you because I think a lot of writers tell the story and they're finished. And at the end, you focus sort of in on the bigger concerns about these forensic tools, which have been so utterly useful. Part of that was your conversation with Sarah Mickeljohn. And I thought that was, to me, that was one of the most interesting conversations and sort of the conversation I guess you had with 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 Levin about this as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about what some of those concerns are and how what seems like a really great tool could be turned to not such a great purpose? Yeah, well, I think you kind of raised two points. One is, is this this kind of golden age of cryptocurrency tracing where Chainalysis, this startup that was really the first to make cryptocurrency tracing a business and to build a tool that they could sell to law enforcement, they made it extremely like uh, easy and accessible for all these three-letter agencies to start identifying everybody in the whole cryptocurrency tracing economy. You know, is that coming to an end because there are new kinds of privacy coins like Monero and Zcash that are designed to foil blockchain analysis, to foil tracing. I thought at, at some points that that might be the case, that I was just describing this kind of 10-year period that was a finite period in history and maybe was coming to an end. A, a lot of people told me that, but I don't really think that that's true ultimately. It turns out, I think Monero people hate me saying this, but, but that they're are ways to trace Monero, it turns out, which is the most popular privacy coin. A leaked chain analysis document ended up on the dark web at one point in which they bragged to Italian police that they were really presenting, you know, a, a capability to the Italian police that where they could trace Monero in something like 80% of cases, at least probabilistically, you know, with some certainty. Zcash is this like potentially truly untraceable cryptocurrency, but it's not catching on it's to the same degree it's it's harder to buy and sell i don't see it being used by criminal actors that much so i think that like leaves us with the other sort of like final question i was raising in the book which is is this actually going to become too powerful is it ethical problem that cryptocurrency can can truly be traced to the degree that it can and that there is no financial privacy in cryptocurrency or really anywhere that you know that that bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies were meant to be an antidote to financial surveillance which is so all pervasive and that they turned out and said to be like the worst trap of all where people thought that they were going to find privacy and instead their every single transaction was tracked and that is a really complicated ethical situation i mean it's not a happy ending to the story a lot of the book i tell it like this cops and robbers story but i hope that people 
understand. And, and, and Sarah Micklejohn, as you were pointing out, the, the researcher who came up with a lot of these tracing techniques in the first place, she sees it as this incredibly complicated ethical problem. She intended a lot of her like tracing um, research to be almost like a public service announcement to cryptocurrency users that this stuff is not as private as you think. It's, it's really the opposite. And I do think that there are really reasons to seek financial privacy, of course. It was interesting to note that Chainalysis even publicly said that they had traced some of the funding to the January 6th rioters that came from a like a some sort of crypto mogul in France. He had he had funded some of this invasion of the capital with millions of dollars of cryptocurrency. Probably you and I can like get behind that and plot it, but it also just shows that the same tools could be used to trace other social movements or protest movements and to identify people. As the CEO of Chainalysis himself told me, there will be a Chainalysis of China. There will be a chain analysis of Russia. You know, people in these countries may still think that they can use cryptocurrency as a means to fund their movements in part because it's not, it can't be censored by a government or a bank, but it can be tracked. And in some cases it can be tracked years later. I mean, blockchains, one thing about them is that you cannot go back and erase your old transactions. They sit out there forever. So if you ever thought that it was a good idea to use cryptocurrency to fund your political movements. You know, that evidence can be excavated years and years later and used to identify you and throw you into prison if you're in a country that does that. Yeah, that was one of the first times that I had seen anybody sort of lay out, you know, you had Alex Gladstein's sort of view that this would be used to harm dissidents, social activists in other countries that, you know, nothing they did would ever be private. On the other hand, you're also talking about situations in which that kind of tracing resulted in the rescue of women who were young girls who were victims of sexual exploitation. And it becomes a sort of moral balancing of what ultimately becomes the greater good. And I don't think with any of these tools, maybe uh, anything, you know, it's like anything that you might invent, how could it potentially be used for evil? as well as good. I did think that was just a really refreshing part of the book and something that you just often don't see. The story just sort of winds to an end without that sort of considered, I guess, epilogue. I want to move on to some of your other writing, though, because I, you know, I'm a long-term, obviously, reader of Wired. And I know at some point you were at Forbes, which I find hard to believe looking at your writing in Wired now, but okay. Well, Life changes. An interesting place. They let me do kind of whatever I wanted, which I'm very grateful for. I mean, you do write about a lot of things that are of interest to people in the national security space. And one of the things that came up, of course, was you just wrote something about the ICC. And I don't have any journalists would actually sit down and look at, you know, an Atlantic Council report and summarize it thoughtfully and then add their own thoughts. But you managed to do that. So the International Criminal Court has said that it's going to start investigating cybercrime. And I know you just wrote about that. And I wondered what your reaction was hearing that about, you know, sort of this large bureaucratic institution, you know, that recently announced it has indicted Vladimir Putin, you know, with all this Kremlin-sponsored ransomware and so on. And it's located in the same country that provided some assistance on the Silk Road investigation. But within I think, 11 days, the ICC announced that its systems had been hacked. Well, yeah. I mean, you can imagine who I am. I'm looking at as the most likely culprit for hacking the ICC. I mean, the the GRU, Russia in general, is is always like going after 
the people who they think are investigating them. They're like hacking the people who they think are going to turn up their secrets. They, we we saw this with their use of chemical weapons, their attempted assassination of Sergei Skripal, and then they, they went after the Swiss laboratory that was investigating that case. They've done the same with the, the Worldwide Anti-Doping Agency, who was investigating them, of course, for doping in the Olympics and, and led that led to their ban. So yeah, it's like kind of makes sense that when you threaten war crimes charges against Putin, you're going to be hacked by Russians. But yeah, I you're, you were referring before that to like the fact that the lead prosecutor of the ICC has now said, Kareem Khan has said that he will look at cyber attacks as potential war crimes or potential violations of international law. I've been talking to Lindsay Freeman at Berkeley's Human Rights Center for more than a year before this. And she was the one who sent a kind of letter petitioning the ICC to bring war crimes charges against Sandworm, which to me is like totally warranted. This is like the the subject of my book, Sandworm, the, this group of Russian hackers who carried out by far the worst, mo most reckless, damaging, largest scale, most indiscriminate cyber attacks in history, um, mostly in Ukraine, but, but spreading to the rest of the world. To me, Kareem Khan saying that he is now willing to look at cyber activities as potential international law violations or war crimes, I have to imagine that the first case that he's going to be looking at is Sandworm. And it, I think that maybe that was just that kind of setting the table for what might be the first actual cyber war crimes prosecution against this public enemy number one of in the cyber war sphere. Yeah, I guess we'll see. And I mean, I sincerely hope that they have staff and technology expertise sufficient to, for that task, because I yeah, think without well, that, it won't be successful. Well, I do think that it will require a totally new kind of investigation. And I don't really know enough about the ICC to know like, if they're equipped for it. But I know that Lindsay Freeman at the Human Rights Center has been sending evidence, trying to kind of hand them the case. I don't want to make it sound like they, don't, they won't do their own investigation from scratch. But I think Ukraine has also said that it is going to investigate cyber taxes, war crimes itself. It seems like Ukraine could collect the evidence and then it could share that with The Hague and war crimes charges can be brought that way, right? So it does seem like there is a will for this and collectively there has to be a capability to do the investigation and the prosecution. Yeah, and you know, the United Nations has its own war investigative body that, you know, went out and picked up artifacts off the battlefield when ISIS controlled territory was finally abandoned and they're very good at what they do. They know what they're looking for. Um, and I have no doubt that they'll be incredibly helpful as well. And I'm sure the world court is not going to turn down evidence handed to them. I'm sure they're going to make sure that it's valid. You know, it has true origins, probably won't be able to establish a perfect chain of custody. You know, no investigator is going to turn down evidence handed to them. It just, it, it's just not how they're wired. And I don't think people on the ICC are going to be any different. But yeah. it will be interesting to see if some of the characters that you've written about ultimately end up working there. That would be interesting. I recall those witnesses or something. You know, six of the of Sandworm's hackers have already been indicted by the U U.S. So is, is, I don't know if there's like a double jeopardy in this case problem, but but it does seem like the the U.S. Department of Justice has must have like a trail of breadcrumbs to identify these guys you know, by name, 
hands on the keyboard activity. In some, in some cases in the indictments, their actual like Google search terms were included and they're described as like having celebrated in certain ways after certain cyber attacks. So it seems like there is a lot of evidence on these guys, not all of which I've seen myself. When I published Sandworm, I kind of had the bare minimum to put out this theory that Sandworm was this one unit of Russia's military intelligence agency, the GRU, the, the unit 74455. It was a little tenuous when I published it and it was only really confirmed in the, over the next year. And I still don't, you know, some of that confirmation is because private sector researchers are able to tie like digital evidence to other theories or not theories, other indictments of individuals. But I don't always know what those indictments are based on entirely. I don't know that the full collection of evidence against these guys, but I know that the DOJ felt confident enough to charge them. And I can see the connections that are public to that private evidence as well. The ICC too can hold accountable their superiors, right? Like if you just know that this one unit did this, then you can charge their commanding officers and like all the way up the Russian military hierarchy, right? I mean, you can, again, I'm not like a lawyer, but it seems like you you could, just as they've threatened, or have they charged Putin? I think that they actually have, right? They Yeah, they announced the indictment and uh, they hinted that there were other indictments that they weren't going to discuss publicly. I guess the only, you know, the question has always been, is this the right priority? There have been so many atrocities that happened in Ukraine. Is it worth trying to set this precedent now that these kinds of investigations extend to cyber war? Or should they just be focusing on all of the terrible physical things that have happened to people, which in many ways should be a higher priority. But when I wrote Sandworm, part of the message of it really was that there needs to be like a new drive for accountability for these kinds of cyber attacks that can have massive ripple effects through the physical world that affect people's lives on a mass scale. And that we had failed as kind of civilization to try to hold people accountable and create a kind of Geneva Convention for cyber war. This seems like it's an opportunity to start to correct that. I do wonder, since you've been looking at this stuff for so long, watching sort of trends and I'll call it cybersecurity, sort of bad behavior, what would you say you're most concerned about when you put the kids to bed at night? Climate change. Nothing to do with all this cyber <laughs> stuff. Uh, I'll but, you I, on that. Um, but no, I, I, if I, yeah, if I actually like, we're not so, if I hadn't invested like a decade and a half learning how to write about cyber attacks, cyber war, cyber crime, I kind of wish that I could just pivot to being a climate reporter, but it's it's hard to give up your beat when you like have any sense of like knowing what you're doing. I guess I, I worry in the long run more about China than Russia. I worry about just the rise of China and its like incredible espionage abilities and the hard line of like the Chinese government about Taiwan. I, you know, I've written a book about Ukraine as this canary in the coal mine. It feels to me like Taiwan is the, is next, and that would be so tragic and so disastrous for the world if if China does ever actually you know carry out that invasion. Yeah, well, we'll see. You know, their economy is doing incredibly badly, and apparently, speaking of cryptocurrency, wealthy Chinese are trying to figure out how to get their money out of China. And part of the discussion was centered around cryptocurrency because the government there is talking about cracking down on any use of it turning it into some sort of a really elevated 
crime with a significant punishment. And, you know, it's not exactly a democracy. So if that thought was had at six o'clock this morning, it could well be law before 6 p.m. tonight in China. Anyway, I really have enjoyed your books and I continue to enjoy your writing and Wired. I'll continue to keep an eye out. I'm sorry you can't make the pivot to climate, but I, I think if you did, that would kind of be unfortunate for your readers. So thanks for coming in and thanks for your amazing work. Keep it up. Well, thank you for all of that. It's been a fun conversation. All right. Good to see you. Our guest tonight has been Andy Greenberg, senior writer at Wired Magazine. Andy is someone you should read on a regular basis if you work in national security, and particularly if you're a policymaker interested in cybersecurity, hacking, international intrigue, dark markets, and the like. He's the author of Tracers in the Dark and Sandworm, and will supply a hyperlink to vendors for these books in the notes to our cast. Send us comments and feedback. You can like us, subscribe, all that good stuff. We're on Twitter. I'm sorry, I'm still calling it Twitter. We're not calling it X, not on this podcast. You can find us on all social media at the handle at ABA NatSec. You can also send us an email like people used to do at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Our producer and writer is me, Alisa Potit, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with all the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. And before you go, mark your calendars for the 33rd Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law, CLE Conference, this November 16th through 17th, held at the Renaissance Washington, D.C. Downtown Hotel. Don't miss out on engaging presentations, thought-provoking panels, and unparalleled networking opportunities. Registration link and event details can be found in the episode description. We look forward to seeing you there. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.